This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. I'm joined now on the line by Eliza Blank, who's the founder and CEO of The Sill. Eliza, thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? Great. So first things first, I'm going to point our listeners to your website, and it's just The Sill. No hyphen, none of that nonsense. Just thesill.com, as in the windowsill. So thesill.com. All right, Eliza, give us the elevator pitch. What's the sill all about? So the sill is the first digitally native and direct-to-consumer brand dedicated to houseplants. We're a platform connecting people to plants uh, and creating a community around that. All right. Well, let's start with something I never quite understood. Explain to our middle-aged listeners like me what digitally native means. Sure. Well, we started online. I think that's the, the easiest okay. way to put it. All right. um, and, and we started online in, in 2012 before we created uh, an omni-channel strategy putting us in brick-and-mortar stores. Okay. So you start online. That was That's the native. That's the origin story. And then let's take the second part of that. Why... What does it mean to connect plants and people? Sure. So it's a great question. Um, I found in starting this business, it was really a solution for myself. So as most entrepreneurs can attest to, especially in the consumer space, we solve our own problems. Uh, What happened in my life is that I moved from a pretty rural part of Massachusetts to New York City and realized... um, in retrospect, that nature and having grass under my feet was actually quite meaningful to my well-being um, as a human. And, uh, and I didn't have that connection to plants in New York City. Mm-hmm. And when I went to try and buy plants and surround myself with plants, it then also occurred to me that I didn't have an innate ability to take care of them. It was actually something that I needed to learn. And I found at that time that I didn't really have that resource. Uh, whether it was a consumer brand or otherwise, to turn to, to then teach me and connect me to plants. So I think we take it for granted that we all assume that we have this natural connection to them. It's somewhat true. We have an innate desire to be connected to plants, but it doesn't mean that we are born with a green thumb. Uh, so that that's interesting. But so that describes the problem that you solve. What what's your solution? How do you how do you how do you deliver on that need for for humanity? Sure. So uh, in my childhood, so going back to the, the, the environment that I grew up in, we would pile into the car on a weekend and drive 40 minutes to the garden center and load everything up in the you know, station wagon and go home and my mother would garden and you know, plants would end up around our house. But when I moved to the city, you know, the problem was there, there wasn't a garden center. I didn't have a car. And uh, at the end of the day, None of that even mattered because I lived in 200 square feet on the sixth floor of a walk-up and my windows faced a brick wall. So what was I going to do in terms of incorporating nature into such a challenging environment? Mm-hmm. So for us to, uh, to really change and modernize that, it meant we actually had to think of a new distribution 
uh, method. And for us, that meant first and foremost, shipping plants directly to our customers and and curating a collection that was going to be well suited for a customer who lived in a city. Uh, perhaps that meant low light. Perhaps that meant, um, you know, small spaces. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in part why we're called the sill, because we're talking to a customer who has a window sill, not a garden. All right. So walk us through the user experience. If I go to your sure. website, um, how, do, how does it work? So if you go to our website today, you'll notice that you can shop in a number of different ways. And even at the core, we have plants and potted plants, um, but we have so much more than that. Uh, so you can shop our product um, in uh, what I call sort of an open stock manner, meaning you can purchase a la carte, whatever you want. You can buy plants, you can buy pots, you can buy potted plants. You can also choose to become a member of the sill, which gives you perks like um, free shipping and a, and a discount and access to events and classes and education. Uh, you can also be a subscriber, which means you're actually receiving a potted plant once a month or once a quarter from us. Um, and we think about plants really holistically. So it's not just about the plant itself. We understand that our customers really lack the education um, to not only start a plant collection, but also maintain it. And so mm -hmm. we offer things like uh, the online classes, in-person workshops, special events. We also offer virtual plant care assistance where you're actually having a face-to-face -face conversation um, through a mobile platform with one of our horticultural experts on the team so that you have that connection to us and we connect you to plants and we give you the confidence to then grow your jungle. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the logistics side of this. I would guess this is not like buying paper towels online. Uh, you actually have to get a, get, get a living thing uh, safely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, how, how do you do that? How do you make sure the dirt doesn't spill? I mean, how, tell us what's in the box and, and how it's actually done. Yeah. Sure. So um, you, you uh, have it right. It is challenging. Um, we've been in this business now since 2012. We've been shipping nationally since about 2015. And we've iterated quite a bit in order to make this a seamless process because now we know customers also have really high expectations about an unboxing experience. This is the first time, maybe in the past five years, where that's something that's talked about, that's shared, and it's experienced um, in, a, in a completely different way uh, than, than ever before. So we have two distribution centers that we wholly uh, run ourselves. So that means everyone inside those four walls are members of the SIL team. They understand how to take care of plants. They understand how to pot the plants. They understand how to package the plants for transit. And we work with an incredible team of engineers to actually create the packaging that gets your plant from our distribution center to your home. And our distribution center, I say distribution center, but it's really part greenhouse um, part shipping facility. And we have one on the East Coast and we have one on the West Coast. So we're getting to our customers um, relatively quickly, um, even um, if we're shipping at ground. So yeah. you're going to have a ship time of a you know, two to three day window. Right. Interesting. And, and how far backward are you integrated? You said greenhouse, but presumably you have suppliers who are, That's right. who are providing the plants. Yeah. That's right. So we don't yeah. grow the plants. You know, we talk, we hear a lot about vertically integrated brands today and they own the manufacturing or they own you know 
um, the, the entire supply chain. We, we like to support the growers who have, you know, been in this business for generations and generations and at the end of the day know way more about growing plants than we do. And so we work with uh, a number of growers, big and small, uh, across this country to ensure that we are getting the best, the healthiest, the most diverse selection of plants. And that's what's coming to us, to our distribution center the pots that we that we sell with the plants are designed by us. They're manufactured elsewhere, but they're mm-hmm. exclusively our own line as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Eliza, take us back to the beginning. You were a uh, you majored in media and communications at NYU, and then you worked in branding. Did you have a Did you always have an entrepreneurial bug? And what led you to to decide that you would form a business around addressing sure. this pain point that you sure. felt? Yeah. Um, so I sort of joke about this because I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I knew that I was both opinionated and bossy. So, uh, uh in, in some respect, it was a natural path for me, but, um, really what it came down to is that my brother, who is my older brother, he's about three and a half years older than me. Uh, he was an entrepreneur first, uh, and I sort of followed in his footsteps and I saw how he had started his own business, how he never had to report to anyone but himself and, um, he was really my inspiration for taking this leap into starting the still. But I had a career uh, prior to that. So to your point, I started in brand strategy. I ended up moving to a startup where I worked on the marketing side. And then ultimately, I realized if I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And and how did you how did you validate the opportunity? Because it, it wouldn't have been obvious to me i don't think that this was, was white, white space yeah yeah to anyone um yeah. it wasn't yeah so i bootstrapped the business for five years mm-hmm. from 2012 to 2017 i had to earn every single dollar that i spent to make this business possible mm-hmm. uh, it was a huge advantage in the end of the day because it meant that i was forced to find product market fit and i was forced to really deeply listen to customers um, and I had to, you know, fail fast and be smart and um, have the conviction and the appetite to keep going. And I think that's at the end of the day why in 2017 I was able to take the business and go raise money against it because they saw the work that had been put in, um, the thought that had been put in, the insights that had come out, and the fact that they could take a bet on me because I was clearly not going anywhere if I could survive five years of bootstrapping um, you know, being funded was going to be a piece of cake. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Eliza Blank, who's the founder and CEO of The Sill, and you can find them at thesill.com. Eliza, take us back to the bootstrapping phase, and and give us a sense, how, how did you actually do this? So are you, you're living in New York, and you decide you want to launch an online plant business, what yep. do you have to do to actually get started in doing that? Uh, you have to have a very forgiving partner who is going to allow you to turn your house or your apartment into a jungle. Um, I, I um, well, we launched with a Kickstarter, actually. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And this was back when Kickstarter was also new, super novel. Things were happening on Kickstarter. People were really paying attention to it. I would say there was so much buzz around it. People would be visiting Kickstarter almost daily just to see what kind of yeah. cool things were launching. And so um, at the time, I actually 
uh, launched on Kickstarter. We had a $12,000 goal. Um, and that was actually, you know, you asked about um, uh, the first sort of point of credibility, like what, what actually was the first dating event? It was the Kickstarter. I, yeah. I sort of told myself, look, if I can't do the Kickstarter, then maybe this isn't such a good idea. Yeah. So the Kickstarter happened. Um, it gave me enough money to go out and buy the first bit of inventory that I needed. And the website was really just a store without a store. And what I mean by that was it was local. I was only actually still servicing New Yorkers. I wasn't, this wasn't a nationwide web effort. Um, But, you know, I was literally going to the markets, buying the plants, buying the planters, potting the plants. And then if you ordered, I was the one showing up at your doorstep and handing it to you. Wow. So it was uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. But I will tell you, the minute, the day we launched the website, someone I did not know ordered a plant. And it was all the validation I needed to keep going. Um, And maybe had nobody ordered that day because we only got one order that day. If that never happened, I might not be here talking to you about the sill, but it happened and it was all the fire I needed to keep going. Yeah. And then, and then what did you feel you had to prove in that, in that first five years to be able to raise institutional capital? I had given myself a pretty arbitrary goal of I'm going to get this business north of a million dollars in revenue. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn heads. Someone will take me seriously. I had every reason um, for investors to doubt me. You know, I was a, you know, a solo female founder talking about branding a commodity. That's a very challenging value proposition. Um, But I knew that I had a lot to prove because the customers, it it resonated from day one, as I mentioned. The customers loved what we were doing. We were building the community. We had momentum. And so I sort of just said, you know, finger in the air, I'm going to get this to north of a million dollars, and I think I have something here. And that's exactly what I did. I did uh, north of a million actually two years in a row before I raised. Um, so I was I was a little slower than I, I anticipated, but um, raised in 2017, which was our second year, doing uh, near $2 million in revenue. Yeah. Well, and, and presumably at that point, you were not – you're no longer – uh, racking up a credit card card bill, you were operating at a scale at which you had positive cash flow as well. Yes and no. I mean, I am almost an American Express case study because we absolutely were working with a credit card. But uh, to your point, yes, we we were operating at uh, profitability, maybe you know, bordering on break even. But we obviously had to be making money in order to keep the light exist. On. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, and then what was the argument? I, I don't know the, I saw in August, 2018, it looks like you raised a series a of 5 million. Presumably you raised some money a little bit before that as well. But what was the argument for what you would use the money for? And what did you use the money for? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the investment that we've made since raising institutional uh, uh, institutional financing has been towards operational infrastructure. So mm-hmm. as you can imagine, and, and you touched on this early in our conversation, it's an operationally complex business. Uh, but what we had proven is that we understood the customer. We were building a brand that was meaningful, that was powerful, and that was influential. We really didn't actually need to spend a ton of money on marketing, and that's why investors love us. 
So instead, we put that money to work and created this distribution network, which now includes, as I mentioned, the two distribution centers, the supply chain, um, as well as now five brick-and-mortar stores. And, and that's really what's helped propel us to the next level while maintaining um, the, the brand that we've started from day one, even mm. during our bootstrapping days. So I, I, I've got a few questions here, but I guess the first question is you talked about the, th the strikes that you had against you in that you were, brand, you were trying to build a company around a commodity, uh, solo female founder, so forth and so forth. But, but what did you, did you set out to build that would be of long-term value? And what do you think you've eventually converged on that you're building that will be of long-term value? Yeah, well, you know, we saw the we saw success in a lot of what I would call mundane industries like, you know, well, well you know, the mattresses of the world or the toothbrushes right. or a lot right. of things needed to be revitalized. And plants, in my opinion, was one of them, one that had actually it was a category that had actually never been marketed or merchandised. But my insight was that there were all the macro trends that we were seeing both um, you know, the, the urbanization of, of this country, um, but, but actually more importantly, the generational trends of, you know, our, our sort of stress load and our, you know, obsession with technology and our, our desire for self-care um, and our desire to be more connected with nature and to, le to lead a greener life. All of this really converged and stood for the business that we were building. Um, and now you see like the tailwinds of that. But we set out to create a brand where no brand existed. You had a entire history um, that basically had a fragmented and you know very antiquated industry. And this is a, you know a very common story we hear. But you know you have garden centers which haven't changed since. You know, the early 1900s, you have horticultural societies, which feel very elitist and distanced from the millennial generation. You have content like HGTV and Martha Stewart and, you know, books and blogs and so forth. But there had never been a single brand to tie all that together and create a platform. So, you know, we believe that there was a there was an opportunity to create a big lifestyle brand that connected people with plants and did so in a way that you could thread together content and community and commerce um, to build something that honestly just had never existed before. Yeah. So what we did was we pulled what used to be garden retail um, more towards health and wellness and self-care and home decor, all the big markets that we're seeing today. So in many ways, I had to convince investors that we're actually creating our own market here. This, you know, we talk a lot about the total addressable market. We're not talking about the plant market of yesterday. We're talking about what uh, will be tomorrow with this generation, with these tailwinds and trends and, you know, how this bill then serves the customer. Yeah. Although I suspect that the total addressable market just in plants with existing channel is not tiny, especially if oh, you're the only online player. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Right. It, it, in and of itself, it's huge. And I think, right. you know, my oh, part of my story was, you know, you have um, a huge gardening industry and market but the way in which my mother gardens is no longer relevant i don't right. have six hours to spend in a backyard that i don't have on a sunday because i don't spend six consecutive hours doing anything so how will gardening actually have to translate to the next few generations and what does that mean for the market yeah
All right, I want to shift gears just a little bit and have you reflect a little bit on Amazon and what role Amazon plays here. I, I, you know, it's it's a little scary to see just how powerful Amazon is in our lives. And I'm wondering whether you've paid that any attention or whether you've given some thought to in what way you can either compete or cooperate with Amazon. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we talk about Amazon quite a bit. Um, and I am an avid Amazon user, so um, probably not a day goes by where I'm not interacting with, with that channel. Um, originally, you know, the thought was Amazon's just another channel. Let's also be on Amazon. We, the SIL set up a little storefront. We tested out. We got to know kind of what uh, worked, what didn't work. Um, but at the end of the day, we um, mostly abandoned that channel. And the reason being is that Amazon's really a search engine. You have yeah. to know what you're buying to purchase something on Amazon. And the reality is, and this goes back to my sort of original thesis, is that people don't know enough about plants to properly search for them. You yeah. know, what are you, are you, people aren't educated enough to say, I want a Monstera, I want a Philodendron, I want a, um, you know, a Parlor Palm. They just know that they're interested in plants. And so they have to go somewhere who uh, that's going to educate them about the plant so that they then know what it is that they want. But they need a little bit more hand-holding. So uh, I know Amazon does a, a plant business, and they've, they've clearly made an effort there. I think it's nascent. I think it's difficult for most customers to find what they're looking for. Um, so right now, I'm honestly just not all that worried about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, we have a, just under one minute, so very quickly, uh, just tell us very quickly about the bricks and mortar initiative, why you did it sure. and what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. sure. So we opened our first brick and mortar store before fundraising. So we did it in 2014. And uh, I would say the first year was a bit of a struggle. It was a bit of a risk. But what we learned by having a store and talking directly to the customer every single day could never be replicated by a survey. And what we then realized was we could layer on a, a community initiative, which really just continued to build on the brand and the loyalty and the retention and kind of the special sauce that makes the sill so unique and special is the experience that people have in the stores. And I think it also offered us a layer of credibility, um, yeah. right? We're not just a faceless brand behind a website, but there is a physical space that you can come and interact with us. And so right. we've been bullish on stores. Okay, well, that's a great answer, and you were very concise, so thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.